the study of self is not derived from foreign, as it were, sources, but the actual Gemara itself indicates that a prerequisite for any attempt to perfect oneself is self-knowledge. And the prerequ- prerequisite for the effective maintenance and fulfillment of the Torah is having good midas. Thus, unless a person begins his spiritual journey with self-knowledge, he will be forever walking around in circles, searching for the truth, and never finding it. Because, let's begin with a little bit of an analogy. Describe it in, in a way as a story. A man, once a man. We'll call him for the sake of our story. Reb Shmuel wakes up in the morning and something deep inside of him. It's not really the first time he's felt this feeling. It's been nagging at him for, for, for years. He feels this frustration, the sense of there needs to be something, there has to be something more in life, there has to be some type of ultimate truth and he can't quite put his finger on what it is and he wants to go on a search to discover it. And that very morning he makes a decision to go on a journey to find and discover the truth. And the reason why his frustration is so tangible is he's developed through the course of his years sense, almost a sense of sight. When something has a little bit of truth associated to it, he can actually have a, it's almost, he sees it with his eyes, a glow, a radiance to that particular thing. And therefore, searching for the truth would be for him as simple as simply looking for where that light comes from. And he goes on a, on a physical voyage. He gets on a boat, and he starts to travel. The boat goes, arrives at an island, he disembarks, maybe a sky that it could be found, and he searches around and comes back disheartened and frustrated. And this goes on. Journeys, lands, and months and years. Eventually, one, one day he arrives towards evening, he arrives on the shore of a faraway land, and he disembarks from the boat and starts to walk up towards a hillock, and for the first time, He's never seen anything like it before in his life. The light is almost blinding. From the top of a hillock, there's this radiance which makes his heart beat louder. It feels as if his entire chest is vibrating from the power of the excitement as he heads towards the source of this light. And he goes and he walks up a path and he sees at the top of this small hillock is a mansion, and from this mansion comes the most incredible, incredible, powerful glow. Gets closer and closer till he gets to the door. Massive oak door knocks on it with a sense of tremendous apprehension about excitement. And he has to wait for what seems like hours until the door slowly creaks open, and behind the door he sees a man whose blue eyes sapphire blue shine with a glow that he's never seen before and they meet his 
and there's an unspoken understanding that exists between them and with a move of his hand he ushers him into this room walks into the room and he's perplexed by what he sees he looks around and wherever he looks from from floor to ceiling from floor to ceiling he sees rows and rows and rows shelves and shelves and shelves of candles oil candles with wicks burning at different degrees of intensity and the oil within each and every candle is at a different level and he's bewildered by what this is and this this is really the source of truth this seems so strange he asks the man he says where where am I what is this and the man with a smile waiting to escape from beneath his lips says to him you've come to the place which is a house of the souls of the world and each one of these candles represents a soul is a pause would you like to see your soul says the man Shmuel nods takes him up to the second floor down a small corridor and he leaves him in front of a oil candle and Reb Shmuel looks at this oil candle and his heart drops for what he sees is is a candle where the flame is already beginning to flicker because the oil in the candle is almost evaporated it's been sucked up by the wick and he stares at his candle, his soul flickering and then almost uncontrollably his eyes move to the candle just next to his own burning brightly filled with oil and the thought comes to his mind maybe if you just take just a little bit of oil from the one next to his wouldn't really harm anyone would it and he's stretching his hand to pour the oil when he senses the presence of the old man in the room and he's startled, turns and their eyes meet and the man looks at him and he says to him for truth you are seeking or are you only searching for yourself? Truth, are you seeking or yourself? That's where the marshal ends. And it's a, it's a complicated marshal, but it does explore, it does explore this dichotomy of the interface and overlap between self-knowledge and the pursuit of truth. On the one hand, since we are separate in every possible way from those around us, and hence our perspective of life is different, truth can't be something which is contained outside of ourselves. It must be the deepest awareness of who we are. On the other hand, it can't only be that. 
and therefore we understand understand the words of Ravolbi that the self-knowledge is the prerequisite for the connection to the higher self when you understand who you are your weaknesses and strengths you're able to enhance and refine your strengths to a level of excellence and overcome your weaknesses and in doing so you then can become a medium a vessel a clea to contain the aura the light so yes it's all about self-knowledge and yes it's all about not self-knowledge it's all about understanding who i am and finding myself and yes it's all about not finding myself and finding the truth but the truth is found only through myself but it's not inside of myself it's outside of myself but through myself only through the refinement of my being can i perceive accurately and truthfully the majesty of the truth when it presents itself a distorted being like a distorted eye can only see double vision a person has to clarify their vision the clarification of vision in the spiritual sense is a perfection of self which comes about through self-knowledge and then the next stage self-perfection then a person can in the words of Avolbi learn Torah then you can have a completion of the study of Torah but as much as and as long as the internal conflict is still raging from within so then the Torah is there but not there you grasp it and then you lose it but you don't integrate for integration a person needs to find self-perfection search for yourself like uh, I mean the way you're saying it it's like there's a like you'll definitely find it you'll definitely get it and from the order that you're saying it's like if you don't find it you won't be able to learn to you won't be able I mean, it's to a life, it's a lifetime search to find yourself to know who you are and what you are and you change you change from what you learn and your strengths grow and your weaknesses might grow or lessen but you're still battling within yourself so how um, in other words, if we, if we phrase it like, like the way I phrase it, it seems, well, almost impossible. Yeah. What she's like, okay, um, so we'll do the first three months, you get to know yourself perfectly, okay. Then next three months, pick yourself up. And then in the last six months, you can tuck a, go ahead and learn. Mm-hmm. Good. But it's not so partial because a person is so complex and so deep. And there are parts of yourself that you only discover when you're, when you're 33. And others when you're 47. And perhaps others when you're 93 and a half and three quarters. So, so therefore, how can you say this? So, so obviously, we can't, yeah, we can't ascribe absolute values to this process. But the degree to which you know yourself will allow you to rectify yourself. And the degree to which you are rectified will allow you to absorb the toe. And therefore, there's, a, there's obviously a spectrum. People are completely out of touch with themselves. We cannot begin the job of fixing up themselves and they will never be able to integrate Torah even to the smallest degree. People who are more at themselves will fix themselves up more and so much and so on and so on and so on and so on. Um, this is, this is, this is, this is, let's, let's, let's go on a little bit further. And let's discuss something else which, which Ravalbi speaks about when he says that the world of the eye is much deeper than um, an accumulation of 
reactions and absorptions of that what's happened outside of me um, in the course of my life which is kind of some, sometimes that's what we think of who I am who am I I'm a product of what's occurred to me I'm a product of my parental influences I'm a product of my society and product of what I've learned and studied in other words it's almost as if the I is not something intrinsic but something extrinsic that was superimposed upon this malleable clay of self and the I therefore is just a function of everything that happened to me but there's no essential component to my being comes along Revolve and he says nay that is not true for the I inside of you is eternal and one. And we'd have to understand, so then what are all those other things that are accumulated throughout the course of your life which seem to be so fundamentally part of myself, my childhood, my experiences, my knowledge, those are not the I. Where is the I? Where does it begin? And where does it end? It's part of the it. I beg your pardon? Yeah, it's used with the, the it with the I. The medium of interaction is what is also being affected. So there's a, a, a baser level of self that is being affected and has the imprint because it's carried in the memories of the physical medium that the eye expresses through this world, which is the body. But the body itself is just the it. The eye is something else. So the, 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 these are these are big, big shiders. There's an interesting uh, account I read recently about a woman that was um, she needed to have. Um, brain surgery and for some reason they had to they had to operate on a part of the brain in order for them to do it effectively they had to cool down the brain essentially freeze it and almost stop it from functioning clinically dead in order for them to perform the surgery and after the surgery she, had, she was able to comment on what the doctors had said while she was under so that kind of like opens up this fascinating topic of discussion which is which is abound in the psychological literature and that is uh, the separation of mind and brain so this is quite fascinating because the death the clinical death was experienced in the brain and yet there seemingly was a higher self when the brain wasn't working at all they had the ability to comprehend the scenario around which is which is, which is kind of like gives gives room to, um, again, it's one anecdote, we can't kind of <laughs> write a scientific paper on it, but nevertheless, it opens up the idea that, well, what is the I? Like you're saying, that it's not, it's not the brain, even though the brain is where maybe it's expressed, it's not the body, the eyes, the sun. So, so Ravobi says a fascinating point over here, and I would like to dwell on this, he says, when you start to go inside of yourself, do you know what you come into contact with? And this is frightening, but inspiring. He said, when you come inside of yourself and you go deeper and deeper, Alex, the Cuban el is something which is deep, and that is Kedusha. One starts to hit in the traveling search for self, one starts to encroach upon new territory. And the name of that new territorial ground is Kedusha. Kedusha sometimes is translated as sanctity, as holiness. But generally the most effective translation I've come up with is a focus on a higher goal, a transcendent purpose in the given moment. For example, when a person is Mekadesh Ha'isha, when he marries a woman, the expression Kiddushin is used because you realize that the interaction between you 
is not purely a means of physical or emotional bonding. There's something beyond it. There's something which is higher. We're trying to create new things in the world, whether it be a physical child or a metaphysical child. But the sum of the parts is far less than the whole. That's called Kedusha. Kedusha, that, that's Shabbos. That, it's a day, but it's a day which is beyond the 24-hour period that it's given. 24 hours in a bit. So, so that's Kiddush. Kiddush, Kiddush. So Kiddush is the evolving in a temporal action with a higher purpose which creates transcendence. So when you start to see yourself, then you start to realize that there's something transcendent about my being. I am not confined by the limitations of body, of emotions, and even of mind. And let's see how we go further in this confrontation with Kedusha. And what is Kedusha? So it comes along a Volbi and he gives an e- interesting explanation of how you get to an understanding of Kedusha. And he says, well, let's first of all understand its opposite. The opposite of Kedusha is Tum'ah, defilement, impurity. And Tum'ah will tell me, because Kedusha is obviously the furthest thing away from Tum'ah. Kedusha is the opposite of Tum'ah. So if I understand what Tum'ah is, maybe by implication I'll be able to understand what Kedusha is. And what is Tum'ah? So he um, quotes a Gemara in Yuma that says in an explanation of the Pasuk, bomb, and you should become impure through them. Do not read the word Vinitmesem, you should become impure. Ella Vinitatem. You should become sealed off. Closed. This is what's known in the words of the Baile Musa specifically. Uh, they, referred this, they, referred this, they referred this expression of Tum as Timtum Halev, the covering over of the heart. In other words, as follows. When a person is exposed to an external stimulus, sometimes his exposure can be muffled and obstructed. Simple example is, um, any person who's lived in noisy conditions would do well to discover those small yellow transparent earplugs. What you do is you buy them for in Israel, a mere price of one shekel ninety-nine, but they never give you that one agora back. And you take these small little foam rubber. Um, they're about. I would say oh, a centimeter long, the diameter of about half a centimeter, made from foam rubber, fluorescent yellow, sometimes with a fluorescent orange line in the top and then around the middle. And what you do is by using your um, your index finger and thumb, you squeeze them into a sharp point and you insert them into your ears. The result is, once they've been inserted to your ears, they then expand, the rubber expands, and they block out the sound to a certain degree. But they don't make it completely, they're not, they're not airtight, they're not like the other kind of earplugs you get, which are those, those like uh, um, rubbery, puttery, putty type of stuff that you actually, you create an entire um, cover over your ears so you can't actually hear a single thing. 
these are foam rubber, so there is a certain amount of the noise which still manages to penetrate through the gaps in the in the material. So what it does is you hear but you don't hear. What happens is you hear muffled sounds, but you don't hear sharp, distinct sounds. So when you're trying to go to sleep, muffled sounds generally aren't that stimulating to your brain that make you stay awake and if you're already asleep they don't generally push you awake from asleep. So it's a, it's a great thing, it's a wonderful wonderful um, thing to use when you've got noisy roommates or or you work on a construction site or you're, you're a drummer or you'd like to take up a job as a parrot keeper or you are surrounded by hundreds of men blowing vuvuzelas or many, many different applications. Uh, Canvas. You use them. Now what happens is though, the way that your experience of the sound is transformed is you hear it but you don't hear it. It's almost as if it just becomes like vague noise in the background. But you don't hear the sharpness. You don't hear the distinction of tone. And therefore, you hear it but you're not really hearing it. What the earplugs are to the sense of sound, Tuma is to our experience of life. We become numbed. We don't hear the crispness. We don't hear, we don't have the clarity. We don't, we don't smell the smell and hear the sounds of Kedusha. It becomes slightly obstructed. It's called Tim Tumalame. That we don't feel what we should feel. We become, as it were, desensitized. We can see something horrible and we'll be able to walk past it unaffected because our sense of response to the stimulus and the stimuli around us is it's muffled. We live a muffled life. Our life is enshrouded by this thick encasement which doesn't allow the beautiful tones and hues of life to be perceived. And then we just walk through life and we become unaffected by the gigantic movements around us because for us they don't really happen. That's what Tuma is. And Kedusha is this heightened sensitivity. This living in this realm where things are meaningful and powerful and transformational. As Ravalbi says, he uses as an example Um, he uses an example the Gomorrah Megillah the Gomorrah Megillah discusses the order of prayer and it said why does it say that in the order of prayer the fourth bracha of the seven, the 18th really 19th bracha the fourth bracha is das understanding wisdom now wisdom is a way that we comprehend the world right it comes after which bracha hakela kodesh kedusha it comes after kedusha meaning that the shmona esrei is not designed it's the most advanced meditation <laughs> possibly available to man today it's the most incredible incredible utensil for spiritual connection but we totally underutilize it and sometimes even abuse it that's another point and that's another share how a person can connect to the shmona esrei what it has to give to us but but it's also a progression. It's not that the brachas are topical. They're actually experiential. So that means the third brach is an experience of Kedusha. And after the experience of Kedusha, das, you arrive at understanding. 
you can grasp, you can fathom, you can be wise, you can become wise, because you can respond in the appropriate way to the lessons that are being taught around you. And that's why the Gemara Megillah says that what did Chachamim see to say Bina after Kedusha? And it says, because it quotes a verse, it says, it expresses the Kedusha of Klal Yisrael, and it says, after that, those that were previously mistaken understood. So the process of Kedusha brings towards understanding. From getting close to Kedusha, one understands, which is a removal of the timtum, the obstruction that inhabits us unless we involve ourselves. But how do you get there? How do you get there? How do you get to yourself? So he brings from the Baal Shem Tov, the great founder of Chassidus, Zeche Tadik Vekadosh Lebrocha, Lechaye HaOlam, says a massive Kiddush. And this Kiddush is literally something which can totally transform the way you look at life and the way you look at yourself. But, like all powerful debater, you have to make sure about the dosage. <laughs> Many a person has taken too many too high a dose of Torah and as a result instead of the curative effect curative effects being present in his being he loses out one has to be cautious when dosing yourself with Torah ideas that you stick to the prescribed dosage which is based on your spiritual body weight and your spiritual body weight is measured by your level and capacity to incorporate into your present life radically new behaviors. If you have a very large spiritual body weight, meaning that you have a highly advanced self which is completely in sync with Torah Mitzvahs, so then the dosage can be increased because it won't affect the body. But if you're a very lightweight in Kedusha and you apply a heavy dose, you can cause yourself some serious damage. So the Baal Shem Tov discusses an entire different perspective of how we view the world and how that can allow us to perceive the depths of our being simply by looking around us. Um, The idea, he says, is as follows, and this idea needs to be incorporated, dealt with, and administered in the right dose. Every single thing we see that surrounds us is a mirror of ourselves. There's not a single thing that we have seen, or that we will see, or that we do see, that is not in some way a reflection of something about who we are. It's impossible for a person to see something he is not. Rabbi Nachman explains this in the <coughs> Mishnah Perek Aves, which says a strange 
ambiguous, ambiguous expression that says a person is exacted a person is his 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 judgment is enacted with and without his consent. Simple translation. The words in Hebrew are midaito midaito with his das, with his understanding, with his knowledge, and without his knowledge. So the simple understanding is whether he wants to or not. Comes along Ibn Nachman, he says it means both at the same time. You are only judged with and without your knowledge. What does that mean? And he brings as an example what happened to David Amalek and Nasan al-Navi. David the king is approached by Nathan the prophet who wants to chastise him for stealing the wife of Uriah HaChiti Bathsheba. But he doesn't say to him, why did you steal this man's wife? He says to him, David Amalek, I have a legal matter to bring before you. There were two men. One of them had an entire flock of sheep. He was a wealthy man, and the other one had one single sheep that he cherished and loved. And it came the day when that rich man wanted to prepare a feast for his friends. So he stole the sheer sheep from the poor person, slaughtered it, and gave it as a gift to his friends. What should the judgment be on that man? To which David Remelech replies, that man is liable for death penalty, stealing from the poor crime punishment by death. Says Nasan Anavi to David Amelech, but that man is here. To which Rav Nachman adds, when a person judges someone unfavorably, the judgment that you're judging is an example of something that you've done, it's just enclosed in someone else. So when you see someone stealing, let's say, you have stolen. And when you judge him unfavorably, you have now paskin that you are guilty for theft. When you see anyone committing anything, doing any misdemeanor, whether it even be as something as, as coming late for davening, coming late for prayer means that you've come late for prayer. But you say, no, I get there every day, 10 minutes early. Oh, every day, 10 minutes early. Well, the truth is, last week, but you, can't, you have to understand, there were, there were circumstances and I was five minutes late. Well, if that's your judgment now, you're being judging yourself, that we can't punish you until you've exacted judgment upon yourself. So when you see him coming five minutes late, or 10 minutes late, or 20 minutes late, it depends how you relate to it. If you say to him, well, you know, I know this person. There must be extenuating circumstances. The reason why, and you come up with the whole rationale in his defense, while you do that, you defend yourself. Yet, when you accuse him, you're only ever accusing yourself. Let's ponder that idea. Thank you.